Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Colt, Ma- Colt Malison. Welcome, Colt. Hey, good to be here. Good to be here. Good to be here. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. All right, so um, our special guest is Roberto Carlos Garcia. He is a poet, storyteller, and essayist, a self-described Sanchocho of provisions from the Harlem Renaissance, the Spanish poets of 1929, the Black Arts movements, the New Rican School, and the Modernists. Garcia is rigorously interrogative of himself and the world around him, conveying nakedness of emotion, intent, and experience. And he writes extensively about the Afro-Latinx and Afro-Diasporic experience. Roberto's third collection, Elegies, is published by Flower Song Press, and his second poetry collection, Black Slash Maybe, uh, an Afro-Lyric, um, is available from Willow Books. Roberto's first collection, Melancholia, is available from Cervencia, Cervenna Barra Press, Barva Press. His poems and uh, prose have appeared in a forthcoming poetry magazine, The Breakbeat Poets, Volume 4, Latinx, Latinext, um, Bettering American Poets, etc., and many others. Uh, he's the founder and cooperative, he's founder of the Cooperative Press, Get Fresh Books Publishing, a nonprofit corporation. Welcome, Roberto. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Good, good. So why don't we start the conversation off a little bit in your, in your bio, you mentioned about being a, a self-described um, Sanchocho. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that is and, and provisions of the Harlem Renaissance, all that, that stuff in the bio that I read? Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and, and we'll start off there. Sure. So uh, a Sancocho is a stew full of many, many ingredients. It's Every culture has its version of it. Sancocho is just the Dominican version, right, uh, from the Dominican Republic. Uh, and it involves, you know, chicken, beef, pork, uh, uh, plantains, potatoes, yuca, you know, cassava. So it's this big stew full of different ingredients. So when I was asked to describe, you know, my influences and and uh, what traditions, you know, inspired me and, and I love to read, I said, it's, you know, it's got to be a sancocho. It's got to be a big stew <laughs> of different elements, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's where that came from. Excellent, excellent. Um, yeah, I really liked how it says you're interrogated himself in the world around him, um, you know, connecting the naked emotions, intent, and experience. And, uh, you know, what does it mean to be interrogative of yourself in the world around you? Like, how do you, what, what do you, like, especially of yourself? Like, I know, I mean, I have my own understanding of being interrogative of yourself, but if you could talk a little bit about that aspect of it, I think it's really interesting to interrogate oneself about one's experience, I guess. Sure, yeah. Um, it's interesting, you know, uh, my my first teacher in that regard, I'm going to say, uh, is James Baldwin. Because if we look at, you know, Baldwin's writing, before he talks about the world around him, right, during, especially during that time, um, he looks at his own inner world and how he's dealing with it and struggling with it, you know, and what it's doing to him. So I think that being interrogative of yourself, you know, is challenging because you have to be coldly honest, right? Mm. <laughs> a lot of people, it's difficult for a lot of people, you know, just to put it plainly. Um, but as, write, as a writer, um, 
And I think artists in general recognize that that is the ultimate, that is our ultimate task, right? Yeah. To interrogate ourselves fully and how we, how and who and the ways we are in the world and the world is in with, is within us, right? You know, so for me, that started with obviously looking at my own life, right? looking at my own experiences, um, uh, especially in my books, uh, what many people call race, you know, I'll call ethnicity, right? Being uh, an Afro descendant, a descendant of uh, enslaved people from Africa, right? Specifically from the Caribbean, though, right? However, you know, having been born and raised in the United States, what is that? What is my experience with all of that history and the way it plays itself out? Let's say socioeconomically and psychologically and politically in the United States. What is my experience? You know, in comparison to my African American cousins, right, or my Afro Caribbean cousins in Jamaica or Trinidad or Tobago or wherever it might be, um, or Europe. And so, you know, I start. I start there. And then that that takes me to everything else, right? Whether it be gender, the idea of gender, or whether it be, um, you know, again, politics or violence, toxic masculinity, um, you name it, right? Whatever comes up. And so that's, I guess, what I mean by that interrogative process, right? Well, I think there's the old saying, like, if if you're not hard on yourself, who will be? So the thing is, like, progression and individualism you have to be able to evaluate what you do you know yeah um i i, I only caught that last part because you sounded kind of far away we oh okay of- sorry no it's just i remember from what you're saying i just remember this old phrase um like if you're not hard on yourself who will be and it's kind of like the yeah. same idea like with to progress as a person you have to be able to you know evaluate what you're doing definitely um and I would say, you know, that it's, you know, you can go from being hard on yourself to challenging yourself, right? Mm-hmm. To doubting yourself to, that's also part of that interrogative process, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, also I would yeah. say that we're born into this system that is oppressive, you know, we're born into the system that, yeah. that is very much yeah. part of the problem. And there's no way yeah. we can really separate ourselves from that system in some ways. You know? Yeah, because it's, it's, it's total aim and goal is to dehumanize us. Mm. And the, we have to keep, I guess, searching within ourselves um, to stay connected to our humanity because that's what makes us human beings, that we have that ability for introspection, you know, and self-reflection and, and, and you know, a whole host of other things. And so... It's it's vitally necessary. I can't. Yeah, yeah. It's it's incredibly necessary. Yeah, and then that's uh, reflected in the poetry, and I think that's where that quote came from. Uh, you know, I was I was at a doing a reading event uh, at the Brooklyn Library. You know, with Kaveh Kanem and the host who worked for Kaveh Kanem at the time. You know, described my work in that way. And I said, Oh my God, can I quote you on that in my bio? <laughs> I said, because, you know, this, this is not easy to do. And you picked up on it immediately from reading my work. I, 
you know, I would, she's like, of course, you know, go ahead. And so that, that's where that came from. Yeah. Sometimes it seems that we need the, the other person's perspective and views in order to better understand ourselves. We see ourselves and others, you know, Sartre once said, how is other people? But I think that uh, in some ways we need other people in order to see ourselves truly and what we are and what we represent and, uh, and be able to see on that, that, that quote unquote hell that he's talking about is really that interrogative process, that, that process of like really seeing ourselves for who we are truly and, and the imprint we're leaving in the world. You know, it's like we have to be responsible for that. I think he understood that, but in the larger context of his work, but you know, I think that, um, you know, we're free to kind of act in any way and we have to understand what the imprint we're leaving behind is. You know, yeah, totally. Um, you know, one of the one of the, I guess, the most enjoyable aspects of of creating art is when people engage with it and engage with you about it, because I think that there's kind of humanity uh, connecting, in a sense, right? And you know, I don't want, I, I, I never write for a particular, you know, let's say audience. I'm always just trying to write the book that I would love to read. You know what I mean? Or that I feel hasn't been written. But that connection is, is so important because that's one, that's what got me into reading and writing, right? Is reading books that speak to me, right? And then, having that connect to whatever my experience was, depending on the book and having an opportunity to connect with the author in some way, shape or form, um, you know, or the artist that's, you know, that's creating connection. That's mm -hmm. what literature does for me, you know? Yeah. Like a good thing about like a book club or a class where you like a group reads the same book. It's always a good conversation. I imagine as an author, like having a, you know, doing a book talk, it's probably pretty enthralling, you know, to have um, feedback and responses and a community through your work, you know? Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, you know, the Dominican Writers Association, uh, they they do a series, they do interviews, you know, they do readings, they do workshops, they do a, a lot of wonderful work. Shout out to Angela Abreu, who runs it, and they they interviewed me <clears throat> about my second book, Black Maybe, and the interviewer was J.P. Infante, who's a, a wonderful up-and-coming writer. And it was so great to find, you know, when someone connects with <laughs> your poems and the text and what's happening, and they interrogate it, right? Um, and then when you do, like, a Q&A, right, and people engage and connect with it, um, especially people who, who come from a similar cultural background. I think that, you know, whether you realize it or not, you are writing to them, you know, you're, you're writing a book and, you know, I hate to use that word universal because it's, it's like overplayed or whatever, but we all have similar experiences. The dishes just might be different, right? <laughs> we all have similar experiences. The languages we're speaking just might be different, but experience is experience, right? And so uh, it speaks to people, but yeah, that, uh, you know, those types of, even the conversation we're having now, I think, um, you know, is so uh, filling and enriching, enriching, right? <laughs> when as I was going through the pandemic and, and Zoom became a thing and it became a way for us to connect and communicate. Yeah. 
it was life-saving right because it allowed the human interaction and connection and so um yeah i just glad that this happened the pandemic now and so imagine if it's like 20 years ago before the internet and all this connection it would have been more isolation yeah i mean yeah. i'm sure there's been uh you know in the history there's been a lot of things going on with the, the flus and all that but the, definitely we, our experience of it has been much better i think than than many people who had a coop in the house you know during shakespearean times yeah there, like there was a plague, yeah, in, a plague yeah. in, in shakespeare's time and he had yeah. to close his theater for a year or two yeah, yeah. like 1609 1610 it was yeah. closed for like a year or two that's crazy well, that's why so many people died because yeah. just, a lot of people just kind of refused to stay inside or maybe they didn't get the word and you know i mean we do you think we lost a lot of people but back then it was like an on an epic scale you know yeah and they had the, the famous meme about how oh well shakespeare wrote king lear and the during the plague or something i remember seeing that somewhere and then people were criticizing and saying oh you know uh, don't put too much pressure on yourself to be overproductive during the quarantine uh, because it's like, you know, that was a totally different situation, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, and that's just capitalism talking. I mean, yeah. what a fucking inconsiderate thing to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you just you can't say some shit like that when people are dying, left and yeah. right, uh, suffering. Like, that's just, yeah. No. <laughs> I think, uh, you yeah. know, the art world has has been you know i think it's here to stay for better or worse but there's a capitalistic really element now to art whether it be you know poetry or whatever it might be you know and it's it's amazing to see so many writers function as you know kind of small independent capitalists in a way right? <laughs> yeah so, yeah i think it's with everything like people that are that you tech things they want to get an app to get rich and famous so i think it's like a kind of there is capitalism but i think it's almost like a natural tendency like if it's always been there to kind of be successful yeah i mean if you go through an mfa it's very easy you know to believe that but um i guess speaking to like these old school you know poets it's interesting right because if you if you went to an mfa i did you have a couple generations of poets that are teachers in an MFA, right? You mm. got the the 30 to 40 somethings and they're, you know, this is the world, this is the world, the MFA we're in, you know, like you got to find a teaching gig or, you know, an editorial gig or something like that. You got to, you know, work to get these prizes or whatever, whatever, whatever. And then there's the generation like for them, they're like, you know, 50s, or 60s and and they kind of push back on that stuff a little bit. You know what I mean? They're like, well, you know, the poetry is, it's got to come first. Da, da, da. And then there's a generation after them where they're, you know, the much older 70 to 80 year old folks that I've met that are just like, they bristle at, you know, the whole process. Like, you know, if you publish a book, Hey, you publish a book, you know, don't give in to the machine. Like you were saying, right? Like I've, yeah. I remember having a, a conversation, um, and and them saying to me, what's important is you know is that you write. That's all that's important. You know, go be a grocer. You know, go be a you know go be a delivery man. Go work at the post office. But the important thing is that you write. You know, don't uh, you know art for the for commerce's sake. 
you know, is not art. So there's there's people who believe that, who have that, and I'm somewhere. I'm I guess I'm closer to that side. You know what I mean? Um, because I think if just more people read as a as a rule, just read more. Uh, you know, a lot of writers wouldn't have to jump through all the hoops that they have to jump through to to get their work out there or to survive, right? To just to eat. Yeah. Yeah. So um, do you, oh, go ahead. And so that's you know, especially in particular poetry. You know, we've we've kind of diminished poetry uh, in this country for a larger general audience to something that's just too difficult to read, and and that's to me obnoxious because when I take poetry into my classrooms, you know, I teach at the college level. You know, my students connect to it; they love it; they engage with it. I didn't know there was poetry like this out here. You know, and there's a lot of times in K twelve we're still teaching the ancient stuff, so. There's just a few kind of things we, we could correct, you know. We could, a lot of people could be reading poetry and it wouldn't have to, you know, I guess be such a capitalistic commercial type of enterprise. Yeah. So do you write every day or do you, do you write when it, you're, you feel like it? Like, what's your writing process? Yeah, I, you know, I write when I have something to write about, okay. you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that guy. And, you know, God bless those folks who can get up at 6, 4, 5, whatever a.m. to write every day. That's phenomenal. You know, that's just that's not my process. Yeah. And I wonder a little bit more about the process of writing and the the interpretation of these kind of interrogation in writing, uh, interrogation of your process in writing. Uh, we're going to uh, hopefully get a chance to listen to some of your writing uh, about in about a few more minutes. Um but just talking a little bit about, um, you know, kind of like how you, uh, yeah, the process of writing and, and press putting language to it. So then you're kind of like really getting into, getting onto those underlying assumptions that we have about, uh, the world and about the, the, our experiences that, and kind of uprooting them, would you say, and kind of rooting them and questioning them? Or how do you like, what is, get a little more zoom into kind of a process and then we can read a poem together. We can have a poem read. Yeah. You know, sometimes um sometimes people just need to to know a thing is true. Mm. And sometimes a poem does that for them. Yeah. Right? Um, especially in this era where there's so much cynicism about believing stuff. You know what I mean? Mm. Sometimes the truth is just a truth. There's no other side of it, there's no other opinion, you know, there's no sometimes it's just the truth is the truth, you know. Hey, guess what? If you go out there long enough, you know, and fuck around and don't wash your hands and don't wear a mask and all of that stuff, you're going to get, you're going to get sick, right? <laughs> like that sometimes the truth is the truth. Like, mm. um, but sometimes a poem also uh, has to ask a question, you know, and, and not give you an answer. Right. Sometimes, you know, a poem is just a, a piece of witnessing, Mm. It depends on what the poem wants to do, you know. Sometimes it, it tells a story, um, and because of the way that story is told, you know, you you have a new experience now with with uh, to, with which to consider the world, you know. And so that writing process and that interrogation, you know, again, just the poem really decides, you know. Once you get that spark okay and you say i'm gonna write about this and you start thinking about it and, and 
working with the language, right? With your diction and, and your syntax and, and thinking about things like, okay, line breaks and what, what shape you see the poem taking. The poem and the thing, right? Whatever that thing is that's at the heart of the poem decides what that poem's gonna be, right? Mm. And so whether it be, you know, ode or whether it be elegy, right? <laughs> or whether it be uh, humorous or, or whatever. Right? Yeah, so I would take a moment, why don't you select a poem and you can read a poem or two and then we can uh, continue the conversation. Uh, sure, I'll, Interruption. I'll read some uh, poems from my, <clears throat> my, my latest collection, Elegies, out with Flower Song Press. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll guess I'll read two. One kind of medium length and, and one shorter one. To a young man on his first period. The way my matriarchs sat at the table that morning is a panorama in my mind. Tianereda sitting cross-legged, pushing back the hair from her forehead and holding the cup in meditation. Mommy cradling un cafecito with one hand, her other arm across her chest, hand resting on her arthritic shoulder, and my big sister Judy, for whom not enough Platano Maduros existed in the world on that morning. And I was welcomed as a hero when I sat down to eat my frosted flakes. Apurate, papi, pa que vayas a la bodega. A five-dollar bill pushed at me. Acuérdate, Cotex, okay? Cotex, no tenga pena. At the bodega, I passed the purplish-blue package. El bodeguero looked at me long and hard. What's up, macho man? You good, hombre? And older boys walked in and saw and hungered. I know what that is. Open it. Give me one. And there was no way. So a fat, bloody lip, two scraped knees, and a head knot later, I made it home, the package unopened. Judy pinched my chin up to see my lip. Did you get yours in too? Did you fight back? She ran warm water over my lip, and I nodded yes. Bueno, she replied. In this life, we all got to bleed sometime. This next poem is called Elegy for My Pop. In the dream, he gasped for breath. I sat bedside and he reached for my hand. We accepted the dream's tenderness. In the real world, we don't know each other and he says as much. This dream, I am an unknown man gifting forgiveness to an unknown man. Pop. What can you do? Life is like that sometimes. Rest easy, I say. Rest. He died like the sun breaking clouds over 161st Street and Broadway. Thank you. Yeah, very good. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. And the name of that uh, collection is called Elegies. I noticed in your uh, bio that they put in brackets. Is that part of the title or? And how does that, yes. uh, yeah. Tell us so about yeah. part of that is um, <clears throat> that 
a lot of the the work of the book is trying to contain grief mm. right find ways to to hold grief so that it doesn't run rampant right and just take over everything so i felt it was appropriate to um to put it in brackets and the brackets also signal that there's so much more you can say that could be said right mm. and i thought it was important to put that in there as well because it literally i could literally go on forever uh, uh writing those elegies um but you know i had a deadline and my, my editor was like when am i gonna get the book you know so <laughs> yeah um but it's also you know there's people that say things about grief, you know, like uh, you never get over grief, right? You just learn to live with it differently. I think, um, you know, if you lose a, a parent, a lot of these elegies are for my grandmother. There's a long sequence of about 20 poems that are all elegies from my grandmother who passed away from Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and because, you know, she raised me, you know, in New York city and partially in New Jersey She's a very important person in my life. Um, she was our matriarch, right? And uh, she she started the whole family here in the United States. So she was just a, a powerful figure in my life and in our lives. And so when she passed, you know, the it was intense grief, <clears throat> and I, you know, so I I took to writing about her and. Um, you know, in her life and our lives together. And so, and you know, writing helped me contain that grief, right? It also helped me remember um, parts of her before Alzheimer's because, uh, you know, she lived, uh, doctors were always very surprised. She, she lived about 10, 11 years with Alzheimer's, you know? Mm. A lot of people don't last that long. Uh, and the doctors were surprised, but it was because she was very well cared for. Um, and so what does that mean? That we, we lived with her a long time uh, in a state where she didn't have memory of us, really. Uh, and so I had to think back as well in order to remember her fully and to grieve her completely. I had to think back to her and who she was before the Alzheimer's, right? Well, Alzheimer's is a very, very earth-shattering experience, you know, a family because all of a sudden this especially if it's you know if it's a parent it's it's even worse because that person that connects you to your history right no longer has memory um not only of her own history but of you and the history you have made together by being raised by this person right it's a it's it's a terrible terrible disease so containing uh, grief I felt was important. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting when, um, you know, um, to think about and, and process grief. We had we had another um, speaker a couple of weeks ago that talked about kind of like five conversations to have with people, people who are living who are dying or people are dying who are living, um, you know, talking about having those conversations, you know, before... Uh, we go through that process of dying and losing people. So we're able to engage with those conversations with them and remind them that we love them, that we forgive them. We forgive ourselves that we, um, 
are giving the process saying goodbye to them. And uh, it's definitely something that we all have to go through. We all suffer loss. We all suffer um, kind of this uh, grief and, 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 and death uh, and, and dying. Um, and just understanding that process is definitely part of the human experience, I think. And, you know, being able to be analytical about that so that then we're able to, to understand how other people process grief and, and how we do it in, in relation to them. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, it's a part of life. Yeah. Death, death is a part of life. And you, you know, you have to be able to address it and be prepared for it. Right? So, so your, your uh, writing helped you through the process of grieving. Like the, there's a, um, the, you said your allergies, you have like 20, uh, for your grandmother. So the, the writing really helped you through that or. Yes, okay. definitely. Um, because it helped me remember okay. and, and it, it, it made a way to keep those memories. Right. Um, and also to see her more clearly beyond the Alzheimer's. Right. Um, but you know, we, you know, I still miss her and think of her all the time. And I'm, I'm always telling my kids stories about her, you know, and, you know, for my aunt, the, you know, it, if she talks about it, she'll weep like it happened yesterday. <laughs> you know, so it's so, you know, grief is, uh, again, I feel like you just learn to live with it, you know, it differently from year to year, but it's always with you. Um, and so, yes, I, I'm very fortunate. I have uh, an outlet, right? This artistic expression. I can write about her, uh, and remember her that way. Um, and it, yes, it definitely, uh, it definitely helps. Um, but it's not therapeutic, right? It's not that, and it's not, um, what's another, there's another word for this, right? When it's, uh, cathartic, right. It's not like cathartic or anything like that. It's just an expression. I think it's just. Just a release, you know, like a, yeah, you know, one, remember. Way. Yeah. one remember. way to remember. Yeah. Cause I know, like, I was just thinking about how so many, so many people, you know, even people who do engage in writing or some kind of craft, uh, they don't do it all the time. So it's not like it's like, you know, it's, uh, it's just a part of their life. So I think that we, when we get back to the essentials of creation of this world and how we're all creators and how we're all co-creating this world and how that part of that essential process of living is, you know, connected, of course, to our discipline of art uh, as artists uh, we're, it's connected, but at the same time, it's some, you know, when we get back to, to the essentials, it's like, you know, um, it's a way to reflect back our essential process of creating this world that we're kind of, you know, we're experiencing viscerally and that yeah. uh, it's just like a tool uh, towards under, better understanding of the way we're creating the world viscerally, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, in your questions, you said you do art and Poetry? Do, do you do uh, like art? Do you do paint or do any art also as well? Uh, I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? You just sound really far away. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll get closer. Sorry. Um, I just wonder if you did other type of art, like painting or drawing, because uh, like in the questions, it sounded like you did more than writing. You did other art. Oh yes. Um, I I do like to paint. I'm an amateur painter. Um, as a matter of fact, the 
the cover of my first book, Melancholia, uh, I painted it. It's one of my paintings that was used uh, as the cover. I also, I, I, I really, I love paintings. I love art in general. Um, and so I always try to take that into account when it comes to my book covers. I really like to have a hand in my book covers, right? <laughs> I, I, I think of the book itself as a work of art from the cover to the back cover, right? And everything in between. Um, the way the poems are in conversation with each other, you know, what people see on the cover. So um, I guess my art background <clears throat> helps me to do that. Um, I don't, you know, I've never shown my work or anything like that. Like I might share a picture on Instagram or something, but um I do enjoy painting and drawing. It's a whole, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, something about color and, and, you know, layering it one on top of the other, right? It's just, it's a different way to express what's going on inside you and in your head. You're not, you're not looking for words, you know, you're looking for like, color blends almost i don't know <laughs> i wish i could explain it yeah i i, guess I, I found not. painting so hard to like mix the colors and to come up with the one because every time i try to do oil painting or acrylic it kind of turns into to mud so i, I kind of i enjoy drawing just like a with pen and pen a pen and paper so like this yeah, it, it you is know, you know fun i was gonna say um you know for me it started with comic books right i used to draw comic book characters all the time um and then, you know, trying to like draw anime and, you know, as a kid, right? And and then started writing comic books and then uh, met a really good friend who is an excellent artist and looking at their art and their comic book, you know, art made me realize, okay, how much further I had to go. <laughs> but, you know, when I was, we were about 18, we, we had a, an interview at Marvel Marvel Comics. I was 18 years old, man, on Park Avenue. And we just, we walked up, you know, and we didn't get the gig. We were just too young and too dumb, you know, <laughs> but, but it showed me, I guess there was a path, I guess, for me in art. And, you know, I've always kept drawing ever since, but uh, my pull was always more towards, you know, the written word. But, you know, people often, you know, say, do you draw? And they I say, yes, definitely. And I say, and I say, well, you know, why? And a lot of people say, well, in your work, there's a lot of images, yeah. right? And one of the things that, you know, artists do so well is look at the world around them and then present it again, right, in their, in their visual art. And I think that, part of my eye as a poet to be as imagistic as possible comes from that tendency to paint and draw stuff. Yes. Yeah, the description, you're actually seeing what you're describing either through art or, or poetry. So it's kind of, it's a definitely good skill to have as a writer. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, there was a time <clears throat> when painters, poets, playwrights, dancers, and sculptors all hung out together, you know, <laughs> and made these, yeah. 
these wonderful artist circles, right? Where they would get together, hang out and, you know, bullshit, drink wine or do whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I wish there was more than that, more of that, you know, today, at least from what I can tell, you know, poets with poets and novelists with novelists. And mm. maybe that's, that's a result of our, you know, MFA culture, but who knows? There's probably programs where that still happens, but you could, you could see a lot of that influence in the work, you know, of, of those eras, right? Like the, the beatniks and, um, like the, yeah, there's all these circles, but I guess now with technology, people feel like in the, they can live anywhere. You don't have to move to Greenwich Village to, to have a circle, you know? So it's, I think it's definitely changed things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a lot of times the famous circles seem like they're kind of like, uh, these small groups of elitists or something like that. But, you know, then, then we get these, especially when you're growing up, it's like you think of them in clicks or something like that. But then we can find community anywhere and everywhere. And we can find our community and find our, our groups and, and try to build off that, you know, as opposed to the idea of competition and the capitalism kind of, you know, inspires and, and then people, this brutal competition of like, you know, trying to better, be better than the other person or trying to one up the other person. Instead, we, we build on communities, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And for every like famous group you can think of, there's probably tons of little circles and creative. Yeah. people you know so there's the you know it's um i like yeah, to see if people would be able to more people make a living off of writing and you know regardless if they're famous or not you know so yeah the, yeah definitely the economics of writing as well is very like and the economics of art in general like you were saying about how capitalism is destroying you know art and and even you say humanity um you know uh it's like art definitely see the art world as being like you know kind of drained by the economics of it that you know it's like the the value of artists and artists art and artists is not as uh valued as as other um more driven uh industries you know yeah you know as a as a as a publisher as well you know i'll say that there's you know there's two tracks because what capitalism does is, is it creates this idea you know of scarcity right yeah um because there's only you know there's two extremes you know it's very extreme it's like okay yeah i'll pay fifty thousand dollars for your painting right (laughs) or (laughs) or it's like you know oh my god i can't get a show anywhere i can't get an agent you know i can't show my art like what do i do right yeah so it always creates these extremes you know like okay hey you win this if you're a writer, you know, here's this prize, it's 500 grand, you know, here you are in the New York Times, you're everywhere, or it's like, you know, good luck with that book, kid, you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's these extremes, you know, and they create this, this kind of, they create this, this idea of scarcity, you know. So as a publisher, my model, you know, is to be as anti-capitalist as possible, Um what, you know, what does that mean? You know, for me, I, you know, I tell my poets before they, they sign up, you know, they come on board. There's, you know, there's two paths to this, right? If you want that, that, that extreme path, you know, you can kind of work your way towards it. You know, there's ladders and there's doors and there's things that, 
you can try to climb and, and you can pay the price for doing those things. And because if that's all you want to do, then you know, go for it. But then there's what my experience has been as a reader, which uh, has been one, you know, life changing. Right. I, I tell folks all the time, you know, I read uh, Robert Frost and Langston Hughes, you know, interchangeably at a very young age and learned about language and how the way people speak, if that's represented on a page, you see part of yourself and you can connect to those different experiences, right? And then I remember reading a book by Piri Tomas called Down These Mean Streets that was just like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> I said, this is, a lot of this is my life, you know? And all of a sudden, you know, as James Baldwin says, you feel less alone in the world, right? Mm. So for me, uh, reading became this exchange, right? This experiential exchange and a way of not only seeing the world and other people's experiences, but also being seen, right? Mm. Um, and so I said, if that's what you want to do, we let's. that's what I want to do. Let's do that, right? Let's connect with... Uh, people on that level. Let's get work out there that's doing those kinds of things. Um, and a lot of it just starts by putting yourself out there, you know, interrogate interrogation, right? Honestly, uh, in your work. Um, but then also uh, when you engage with folks, because now I think after every reading, right, we have Q and A's and things like that. Right. Yeah. And so I think people can tell when you're giving them the canned answer or when, you know, you're like, you know, I'm going to let this person know what I, what went into this, right. Or yeah. what I had to go through kind of to get to this, this poem. And so when, when we think about capitalism, you know, that's the, the last thing capitalism wants is that human connection, mm. that agreement, right? <laughs> or I don't want to say agreement. I want to say understanding, right? Um, because capitalism is, is creates discord. It creates separation and competition and antagonism, right? Whereas, you know, we're when you're making connections and you have understandings, a lot of that stuff kind of gets put on the back burner, and, and I think that's important, you know, and another thing is, and, and some people embrace this, you know, capitalism, you know, entering into, uh, I'll speak about poetry in, in particular, has created a competitiveness, you know, amongst poets and, and uh, I guess, you know, some elitism and crap like that, you know, on, in some circles. And it's like, you know, it's not a sport, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's no... You don't put three people up there, you know, maybe they do that in the slam competitions and stuff, but, you know, there's no gold, silver, bronze and, and all of that stuff. So, yeah, as you guys can tell, like, I really hate capitalism. <laughs> 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 um, I think that uh, it's, I think it's important that art and the books that we publish here um, be about that connection. Yeah. You know? Is that, about, not those extremes of scarcity that uh, capitalism can can produce. Right? There's the whole thing a human condition is that's what all literature like should have. There should be a connection, and um, yeah, I like the 
you know, read about a part of the world I've never been to and you can, there's something to kind of connect the experience, you know, like that's what good literature does. You kind of, you know, connect with it, even though it's not anything to do with your, where you live or your setting, you know? Yeah. That, that, you know, that's what I, I tell them, I explain this to my students. Um, You know, I start, I say, you know, listen, real literature is a study of the human condition, you know, and, and then I ask them, you know, what's your condition as a human being right now? You know, and they're like, you know, just getting here, you know, the struggle of getting to class, professor, you know, and I'm yeah. like, absolutely, that's it, you know, you know, you want to get this degree, right, this piece of paper, you know, what's standing in your way, you know, and it's funny when some of them say, well, you, and I go, me, I'm not standing anywhere, I'm just a professor, right, <laughs> but I'm like, you know, that's the human condition, you know, you're, you're, you're searching for something, you're, maybe you're trying to achieve or accomplish something, or maybe you just want to know yourself better, right, everybody's human condition is different. We can find that in, in literature, I say, you know, and, and then you're going to get a whole smorgasbord of stuff. Um, and that's, you know, like maybe you guys have heard, right. With the, the push to end critical race theory, because it's yeah. just a harmful thing, <laughs> but guess what, you know, Marxist criticism, feminist criticism, right? Uh, psychological criticism, uh, environmental studies, you know, and on and on, you know, Asian studies, all of this stuff is doing the same work critical race theory is doing, you know? Yeah. But these boneheads, like, they're not, I mean, I don't know if it's a good thing or, or a bad thing that they don't know enough to know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, that, that's really kind of, showing people the realness you know of humanity not not some i don't know not some children's book version right <laughs> and so i think that again you know capitalism is vehemently opposed to that that reality but i i, I guess i love writing and reading because you know it shows that to me i just want to remind listeners this is ready for bookland the truth to power show we're here with co-host Colt Malison and special guest Roberto Carlos Garcia. Uh, so we're talking a little bit about dismantling the uh, the capitalist patriarchy and uh, what uh, what could possibly um, you know kind of I mean there's again this kind of that narrative of like oh then what are you for what are you what are you standing for but I think I understand from what you're saying that you know you're kind of standing for our own individual truths in a way it kind of rings to me a little bit like uh, you know I've had a few guests on who promote like um, kind of the Marxist anarchy or anarchist or anarchism. So it sounds a little bit like you're purporting for everyone to live their own truth and live the truth of their community rather than, you know, support um, any particular ideological leaning. Would you say that's accurate? Or what, what would you say is your uh, theoretical framework independent of capitalism? You know, um, our world is an interesting and complicated one. So I think what, what a lot, what too many, you know, people do is think that there's one bandaid you're going to be able to put on things. Mm. And that's, that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's what yeah. we're trying to do now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, and so I think that people will have to figure out what works regionally right mm. 
what works for, let's say, the tri-state area that has one of the highest concentration of people anywhere in the country is not going to work for, let's say, people in Idaho, right? (laughs) It's not going to work for people in West Texas. So I think that if we do come together to decide, okay, what kind of things are going to help sustain our environments, right? Um, you know, if we say, okay, capitalism's not it, all right? It's ruining everything. It's out the window. Goodbye. If we ever get to that point, I think what we'll find is, you know, there are some universal truths, right? People need food, water, shelter, clothing, and, you know, safety, right? From violence. Um, these are very critical components. Um, and then, you know, you get to love and affection and family and all that stuff, which is very important as well. Um, and so as long as we can, we can figure out ways to keep people safe and get those things on those levels, right? That's what's important. And I think whatever we build has to be built on top of that. I wish I could tell you I had the solution. I, I don't. I'm just glad I'm smart enough to know that, you know, capitalism's bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's going to take, it's going to take something that's, that we, I guess we can't even conceive of right now, but whatever it is, it has to be, and I hate to use these ter- this, these terms because it seems so physical, but it has to be agile. Yeah. Right. To be flexible uh, and fluid. Right. It's got to be something that that evolves and changes easily the way we do. Mm. Right. The way we do. And, you know, it's interesting. Right. Uh, uh, I have a, a, a proofreader looking at a, an essay collection I wrote. Right. And they're like, wow, you know, you. I can't believe you wrote all these essays, you know, in this, in this time frame, you know, and I, I look back and I'm like, I get now how people who, who wake up every day and write at five with that expressed purpose, right. Mm. Manage to put out the number of books that they do. Right? That's again, that's not my process, but I, I, I do understand that. And so when I think about, you know, these big questions, like, okay, if not capitalism, if not democracy, what, right. Well, it would be interesting for me to see what happens if all of us just work towards, you know, as opposed to having to work nine to five to do, you know, whatever, whatever, right? If, I guess, those of us gifted enough to understand, you know, how the rest of us live, right? Uh, With our input, of course, what if the work every day was towards, all right, you know, remember, right, capitalism has gone out the window. We're like, this is not going to work anymore. We got to get it out of here. And this version of democracy is crap too because of capitalism. Then if the work every day is to create something better, new and different, you, we could come up with it, right? To create industries that don't destroy our environment that don't exploit labor and people, right? I think it can be done, but that has to be the explicit goal kind of daily of the entire 
race, you know, as opposed to small groups of people working towards this and the machine just kind of whittling them down, you know, to nothing yeah. at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. I just, I just wish like everyone would have more of a choice in what they do for a living or, or a passion. Cause, um, there's so many people that work where they don't want to work and, or, you know, people, there shouldn't be homeless people and mental Ill people on the streets too. Just, it is a, a lot of problems. I'm, I don't know. I still think, go ahead. I'm sorry. Especially because we have the means to not have homeless people. That's what is the real kick in the head that we have the means if we didn't. Okay. Like there are some, um, developing nations, you know, who literally just don't have the means to do things, right? They just, they don't have the means, you know, and, and why that is, is a whole nother story, right? But uh, here in this country, we have the means, right? And because the majority of our homeless population are people with mental illnesses who have been turned away from institutions for various reasons. And so, you know, the whole insurance thing, I'm sure is part of it. The United States doesn't keep sanatoriums anymore like it used to in the 50s and 60s. And so all these folks are out in the streets, you know. We have the means, you know, but mm. it's like, well, where's the profit in that, <laughs> right? That's the question. That is literally the question. Like, what's the profit in that? How do we make money from helping these people? Yeah. What? shit like what right so again i i think in the same way that i can sit down every day and bang out 100 pages let's say a day if 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 again right if we could just get capitalism out of the door out of out the window right and sit there and bang away every day on getting a better system you know in place i'm positive it could be done you know but, you know, it's a big ask. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think that uh, we have to get to the root. I, I think it, uh, as, as uh, illustrated by this great um, little uh, antidote I, I remember reading, this person is protesting the government's actions and someone comes up to him and says, you know, what is your protest going to do to change the government and, and the government's actions? And he says, I'm not trying to change the government. I'm trying to change myself. I'm trying to you know, get that internalized you know, um, kind of subversience or, or kind of, uh, mm -hmm. deference to the government, you know, out of my mind. So I'm clear minded in my own practice. And I think that's all I'm, I'm saying in my, I'm putting words into the phrase. I think yeah. it was phrased a little differently, but the point is, you know, we all have to kind of, in order for us to even begin to approach what's out there, we have to really get to the interrogating of ourselves and, and what our process and, and what, in what ways have we, uh, internalized and made assumptions about the world that are grounded in this patriarchal capitalist uh, society and in what ways can we get to the root of that and understand um, what the alternatives is for ourselves and for our communities, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. Vijay, um, my students, you know, after we, when we read and we're, we're going through, you know, the literary criticism and we're going through critical race theory, you know, I had a student say, you know, so I have a question. I said, yeah. And the student said, um, you know, should I not 
like love America, you know, should I not be a patriot, right? <laughs> should I yeah. not be patriotic? And <laughs> I, I said, I'm glad you asked this question, right? I said, because the relationship of a citizen to their country isn't only about, you know, patriotism, right? Yeah. It's about accountability. Yeah. Right? Your job as a citizen is to hold your country or government accountable. Right? Yeah. For, exactly. for uh, everything. For what they say your rights are. Right? Mm. For how they conduct themselves at home and abroad. Right? It's almost like I, I said it's almost like when our parents get older and now we're the adult, right? And we are kind of making sure that they're they're okay, that they're doing the things they taught us to do still, right? Um we're we're we have this we have this big unruly child is what the government is. You have this big unruly child, you know, people who make hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year, people who have the best insurance of anyone in the country, right? Meanwhile, you know, everybody else kind of has to struggle. Um, people who make decisions regardless of what the, the populace wants. So I said, you know, the true role of a citizen is to hold their democracy, their government accountable. Yeah. Right. Um, and the way you get to that, Vijay, is like just what you were saying, you know, about making sure that you beat that deference out of you yeah. <laughs> and yeah. have that fire, um, or just the, you know, what's the word? The, uh, when you have a kind of the presence, right? Just the presence of mind, right? Just, just the understanding that that's your role, right? Yeah opposed to blindly kind of beating the baton and waving you know, the flag. That's, yeah, that's not what we need at all. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I just want to tell people, uh, you know, th that Radio Free Brooklyn is a uh, free forum community internet radio, and we rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So you can give a one-time donation, monthly pledge by going to radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. Then you can find some great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag that we'd like to send you to say thanks. You can also use your phone to text RFB123 to 44321. It takes only a moment to be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, uh, you go to amazon.com slash smile and register ready for Brooklyn as your nonprofit you wish to support. Um, when you do a percentage of your sales, you go to RFB and it costs you nothing. No donation is too big or too small. Whatever you can afford will make a huge difference. We thank you in the bottom of our hearts and hope our listeners 